Section 7. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lewis Richardson. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Volume 1. The Horse of the Invisible. By William Hope Hodgson. Part 1. When I reached 427 Cheney Walk, Chelsea, I found Cornacki sitting alone. As I came into the room, he rose with a perceptibly stiff movement, and extended his left hand. His face seemed to be badly scarred and bruised, and his right hand was bandaged. He shook hands and offered me his paper, which I refused. Then he passed me a handful of photographs, and returned to his reading. Now, that is just Cornacki. Not a word had come from him and not a question from me. He would tell us all about it later. I spent about half an hour looking at the photographs, which were chiefly snaps, some by flashlight, of an extraordinarily pretty girl, though in some of the photographs it was wonderful that her prettiness was so evident, for so frightened and startled was her expression, that it was difficult not to believe that she had been photographed in the presence of some imminent and overwhelming danger. The bulk of the photographs were of interiors of different rooms and passages, and in every one the girl might be seen, either full length in the distance, or closer with perhaps only a hand or arm or portion of the head or dress included in the photograph. All of these had evidently been taken with some definite aim. They did not have for its first purpose the picturing of the girl, but obviously of her surroundings, and they made me very curious, as you can imagine. Near the bottom of the pile, however, I came across something definitely extraordinary. It was a photograph of the girl, standing abrupt and clear in the great blaze of a flashlight, as was plain to be seen. Her face was turned a little upward, as if she had been frightened suddenly by some noise. Directly above her, as though half-formed and coming down out of the shadows, was the shape of a single enormous hoof. I examined this photograph for a long time without understanding it more than that it had probably to do with some queer case in which Cornacki was interested. When Jessop, Arkwright, and Taylor came in, Cornacki quietly held out his hand for the photographs, which I returned in the same spirit, and afterwards we all went in to dinner. When we had spent a quiet but profitable hour at the table, we pulled our chairs round and made ourselves snug, and Cornacki began. I've been north. He said, speaking slowly and painfully between puffs at his pipe, up to Hiskins of East Lancashire. It has been a pretty strange business all round, as I fancy you chaps will think when I have finished. I knew, before I went, something about the horse story, as I have heard it called, but I never thought of it as coming my way somehow. Also, I know now that I never considered it seriously, in spite of my rule always to keep an open mind. Funny creatures we humans! Well, I got a wire asking for an appointment, which of course told me that there was some trouble. On the date I fixed, old Captain Hiskins himself came up to see me. He told me a great many new details about the horse story, though naturally I had always known the main points, and understood that if the first child were a girl, that girl would be haunted by the horse during her courtship. It is, as you can see, an extraordinary story and though I have always known about it, I have never thought it to be anything more than an old-time legend, as I have already hinted. 
You see, for seven generations the Hiskins family have had men children for their firstborn, and even the Hiskins themselves have long considered the tale to be little more than a myth. To come to the present, the eldest child of the reigning family is a girl, and she has been often teased and warned in jest by her friends and relations that she is the first girl to be the eldest for seven generations, and that she would have to keep her men friends at arm's length or go into a nunnery if she hoped to escape the haunting. And this, I think, shows us how thoroughly the tale has grown to be considered as nothing worthy of the least serious thought, don't you think so? Two months ago, Miss Hiskins became engaged to Beaumont, a young naval officer, and on the evening of the very day of the engagement, before it was even formally announced, a most extraordinary thing happened, which resulted in Captain Hiskins making the appointment and my ultimately going down to their place to look into the thing. From the old family records and papers that were trusted to me, I found that there could be no possible doubt that prior to something like a hundred and fifty years ago, there were some very extraordinary and disagreeable coincidences, to put the thing in the least emotional way. In the whole of the two centuries prior to that date, there were five first-born girls out of a total of seven generations of the family. Each of these girls grew up to maidenhood, and each became engaged, and each one died during the period of engagement, two by suicide, one by falling from a window, one from a broken heart, presumably heart failure owing to sudden shock through fright. The fifth girl was killed one evening in the park round the house. But just how, there seemed to be no exact knowledge, only that there was an impression that she had been kicked by a horse. She was dead when found. Now, you see, all of these deaths might be attributed in a way, even the suicides, to natural causes. I mean, as distinct from supernatural, you see? Yet, in every case, the maidens had undoubtedly suffered some extraordinary and terrifying experiences during their various courtships. For in all of the records there was mention either of the neighing of an unseen horse, or of the sounds of an invisible horse galloping, as well as many other peculiar and quite inexplicable manifestations. You begin to understand now, I think, just how extraordinary a business it was that I was asked to look into. I gathered from the records that the haunting of the girls was so constant and horrible that two of the girls' lovers fairly ran away from their lady-loves. And I think it was this, more than anything else, that made me feel that there had been something more in it than a mere succession of uncomfortable coincidences. I got hold of these facts before I had been many hours in the house, and after this I went pretty carefully into the details of the things that had happened on the night of Miss Hiskin's engagement to Beaumont. It seems that, as the two of them were going through the big lower corridor, just after dusk and before the lamps had been lighted, there had been a sudden horrible neighing in the corridor close to them. Immediately afterwards, Beaumont received a tremendous blow or kick which broke his right forearm. Then the rest of the family came running to know what was wrong, and the servants. Lights were brought in the corridor, and afterwards the whole house searched. But nothing unusual was found. You can imagine the excitement in the house, and the half-incredulous, half-believing talk about the old legend. Later on, in the middle of the night, the old captain was awakened by the sound of a great horse galloping round and round the house. 
Several times after this, both Beaumont and the girl said that they had heard the sounds of hooves near to them after dusk in several of the rooms and corridors. Three nights later, Beaumont was awakened by a strange neighing in the night-time, seeming to come from the direction of his sweetheart's bedroom. He ran hurriedly for her father, and the two of them raced to her room. They found her awake, and ill with sheer terror, having been awakened by the neighing seemingly close to her bed. The night before I arrived there had been a fresh happening, and they were all in a frightfully nervy state, as you can imagine. I spent most of the first day, as I have hinted, in getting hold of details, but after dinner I slacked off and played billiards all the evening with Beaumont and Miss Hiskins. We stopped about ten o'clock and had coffee, and I got Beaumont to give me full particulars about the thing that had happened the night before. He and Miss Hiskins had been sitting quietly in her aunt's boudoir whilst the old lady chaperoned them behind a book. It was growing dusk, and the lamp was at her end of the table. The rest of the house was not yet lit, as the evening had come earlier than usual. Well, it seems that the door into the hall was open, and suddenly the girl said, "'Shh! What's that?' They both listened, and then Beaumont heard it. "'The sound of a horse!' outside the front door. "'Your father?' he suggested, but she reminded him that her father was not riding. Of course they were both ready to feel queer, as you can suppose, but Beaumont made an effort to shake this off and went into the hall to see whether anyone was at the entrance. It was pretty dark in the hall, and he could see the glass panels of the inner draught door clear-cut in the darkness of the hall. He walked over to the glass and looked through into the drive beyond, but there was nothing in sight. He felt nervous and puzzled, and opened the inner door and went out onto the carriage circle. Almost directly afterwards the great hall door swung to with a crash behind him. He told me that he had had a sudden awful feeling of having been trapped in some way, this is how he put it. He whirled round and gripped the door handle, but something seemed to be holding it with a vast grip on the other side. Then before it could be fixed in his mind that this was so, he was able to turn the handle and opened the door. He paused a moment in the doorway, and peered into the hall, for he had hardly steadied his mind sufficiently to know whether he was really frightened or not. Then he heard his sweetheart blow him a kiss out of the greyness of the big, unlit hall, and he knew that she had followed him from the boudoir. He blew her a kiss back, and stepped inside the doorway, meaning to go to her, and then suddenly in a flash of sickening knowledge, he knew that it was not his sweetheart who had blown him that kiss. He knew that something was trying to tempt him alone into the darkness, and that the girl had never left the boudoir. He jumped back, and in the same instant of time he heard the kiss again, nearer to him. He called out at the top of his voice, Mary, stay in the boudoir. Don't move out of the boudoir until I come to you. He heard her call something in reply from the boudoir, and then he had struck a clump of a dozen or so matches, and was holding them above his head and looking round the hall. There was no one in it, but even as the matches burned out, there came the sounds of a great horse galloping down the empty drive. Now, you see, both he and the girl had heard the sounds of the horse galloping, but when I questioned more closely, I found that the aunt had heard nothing though it is true she is a bit deaf, and she was further back in the room. 
Of course, both he and Miss Hiskins had been in an extremely nervous state, and ready to hear anything. The door might have been slammed by a sudden puff of wind, owing to some inner door being opened, and as for the grip on the handle, that may have been nothing more than the sneck catching. With regard to the kisses and the sounds of the horse galloping, I pointed out that these might have seemed ordinary enough sounds, if they had been only cool enough to reason. As I told him, and as he knew, the sounds of a horse galloping carry a long way on the wind, so that what he had heard might have been nothing more than a horse being ridden some distance away. And as for the kiss, plenty of quiet noises, the rustle of a paper or a leaf, have a somewhat similar sound, especially if one is in an overstrung condition, and imagining things. I was preaching this little sermon on common sense versus hysteria, as we put out the lights and left the billiard-room, but neither Beaumont nor Miss Hiskins would agree that there had been any fancy on their parts. We had come out of the billiard-room by this, and were going along the passage, and I was still doing my best to make both of them see the ordinary commonplace possibilities of the happening, when what killed my pig, as the saying goes, was the sound of a hoof in the dark billiard-room we had just left. I felt the creep come on me in a flash, up my spine and over the back of my head. Miss Hiskins whooped like a child with whooping cough, and ran up the passage giving little gasping screams. Beaumont, however, ripped round on his heels and jumped back a couple of yards. I gave back a bit, too, as you can understand. There it is, he said in a low, breathless voice. Perhaps you'll believe me now. There's certainly something, I whispered back, and never taking my gaze off the closed door of the billiard-room. Hush, he muttered. There it is again. There was a sound like a great horse pacing round and round the billiard-room, with slow, deliberate steps. A horrible cold fright took me, so that it seemed impossible to take a full breath. You know the feeling. And then I know we must have walked backwards, for we found ourselves suddenly at the opening of the long passage. We stopped there and listened. The sounds went on steadily, with a horrible sort of deliberateness, as if the brute were taking a sort of malicious gusto in walking about all over the room in which we had just been. Do you understand what I mean? Then there was a pause, and a long time of absolute quiet, except for an excited whispering from some of the people down in the big hall. The sound came plainly up the wide stairway. I fancy they were gathered round Miss Hiskins with some notion of protecting her. I should think Beaumont and I stood there at the end of the passage for about five minutes, listening for any noise in the billiard-room. Then I realised what a horrible funk I was in, and I said to him, "'I'm going to see what's in there.' "'So am I,' he answered. He was pretty white, but he had heaps of pluck. I told him to wait a minute, and I made a dash into my bedroom and got my camera and flashlight. I slipped my revolver into my right-hand pocket and a knuckle-duster over my left fist where it was ready, and yet would not stop me from being able to work my flashlight. Then I ran back to Beaumont. He held out his right hand to show me that he had his pistol, and I nodded, but whispered to him not to be too quick to shoot, as there might be some silly practical joking at work after all. He had got a lamp from a bracket in the upper hall, which he was holding in the crook of his damaged arm, so that we had a good light. Then we went down the passage, towards the billiard-room, and you can imagine that we were a pretty nervous couple. All this time there had not been a sound, but abruptly— when we were within a couple of yards of the door, 
we heard the sudden clumping of a hoof on the solid parquet floor of the billiard-room. In the instant afterward, it seemed to me that the whole place shook beneath the ponderous hoof-falls of some huge thing coming towards the door. Both Beaumont and I gave back a pace or two, and then realised, and hung on to our courage, as he might say, and waited. The great tread came right up to the door, and then stopped, and there was an instant of absolute silence. Except that, so far as I was concerned, the pulse of my throat and temples almost deafened me. I dare say we waited quite half a minute, and then came the further restless clumping of a great hoof. Immediately afterward the sound came right on, as if some invisible thing passed through the closed door and the passage, and I know that I spread myself stiff against the wall. The clunk-clunk, clunk-clunk of the great hoof-falls passed right between us, and slowly and with deadly deliberateness down the passage. I heard them through a haze of blood-beats in my ears and temples, and my body extraordinarily rigid and pringling and breathless. I stood for a little time like this, my head turned so that I should see up the passage. I was conscious only that there was a hideous danger abroad. Do you understand? And then suddenly my pluck came back to me. I was aware that the noise of the hoof-beats sounded near the other end of the passage. I twisted quickly and got my camera to bear and snapped the flashlight. Immediately afterward Beaumont let fly a storm of shots down the passage, and began to run, shouting, "'It's after Mary! Run! Run!' He rushed down the passage, and I after him, and we came out on the main landing and heard the sound of a hoof on the stairs, and after that nothing, and from thence onwards nothing. Down below us in the big hall I could see a number of the household round Miss Hiskins, who seemed to have fainted, and there were several of the servants clumped together a little way off, staring up at the main landing, and no one saying a single word. And about some twenty steps up the stairs was old Captain Hiskins, with a drawn sword in his hand, where he had halted just below the last hoof-sound. I think I never saw anything finer than that old man standing there between his daughter and that infernal thing. I dare say you can understand the queer feeling of horror I had at passing that place on the stairs where the sounds had ceased. It was as if the monster was still standing there, invisible. And the peculiar thing was that we never heard another sound of the hoof, either up or down the stairs. After they had taken Miss Hiskins to her room, I sent word that I should follow so soon as they were ready for me. And presently, when a message came to tell me that I could come any time, I asked her father to give me a hand with my instrument box, and between us we carried it into the girl's bedroom. I had the bed pulled well out into the middle of the room, after which I erected the electric pentangle round the bed. Then I directed that lamps should be placed round the room, but that on no account must any light be made within the pentangle. Neither must any one pass in or out. The girl's mother I had placed within the pentangle, and directed that her maid should sit without, ready to carry any message, so as to make sure that Mrs. Hiskins did not have to leave the pentangle. I suggested also that the girl's father should stay the night in the room, and that he had better be armed. When I left the room I found Beaumont waiting outside the door in a miserable state of anxiety. I told him what I had done, and explained to him that Miss Hiskins was probably perfectly safe within the protection, but that in addition to her father remaining the night in the room I intended to stand guard at the door. I told him that I should like him to keep me company, for I knew that he could never sleep, 
and I should not be sorry to have a companion. Also, I wanted to have him under my own observation, for there was no doubt but that he was actually in greater danger than the girl. At least that was my opinion, and still is, as I think you will agree later. I asked him whether he would object to my drawing a pentangle round him for the night, and got him to agree, but I saw that he did not know whether to be superstitious about it, or to regard it more as a piece of foolish mumming. But he took it seriously enough when I gave him some particulars about the Black Veil case, when young Alster died. You remember he said it was a piece of silly superstition, and stayed outside? Poor devil. As it chanced, the night passed quietly enough, until a little while before dawn, when we both heard the sounds of a great horse galloping round and round the house, just as Captain Hiskins had described it. You can imagine how queer it made me feel, and directly afterward I heard someone stir within the room. I knocked at the door, for I was uneasy, and the captain came. I asked whether everything was right, to which he replied yes, and immediately asked whether I had heard the sounds of the galloping, so that I knew he had heard them also. I suggested that it might be well to leave the bedroom door open a little, until the dawn came in, as there was certainly something abroad. This was done, and he went back into the room to be near to his wife and daughter. I had better say here that I was doubtful whether there was any value in the defence about Miss Hiskins, for what I term the personal sounds of the manifestation were so extraordinarily material, that I was inclined to parallel the case with that of Hartford's, where the hand of the child kept materialising within the pentangle, and patting the floor. As you will remember, that was a hideous business. Yet, as it chanced, nothing further happened, and so soon as daylight had fully come, we all went off to bed. Beaumont knocked me up about midday, and I went down and made breakfast into lunch. Miss Hiskins was there, and seemed in very fair spirits, considering. She told me that I had made her feel almost safe for the first time in days. She told me also that her cousin, Harry Parsket, was coming down from London, and she knew that he would do anything to help fight the ghost. After that, she and Beaumont went into the grounds, to have a little time together. I had a walk in the grounds myself, and went round the house, but saw no traces of hoof-marks, and after that I spent the rest of the day making an examination of the house, but found nothing. I made an end of my search before dark, and went to my room to dress for dinner. When I got down, the cousin had just arrived, and I found him one of the nicest men I have met for a long time, a chap with a tremendous amount of pluck, and the particular kind of man I like to have with me, in a bad case like the one I was on. I could see that what puzzled him most was our belief in the genuineness of the haunting, and I found myself almost wanting something to happen, just to show him how true it was. As it chanced, something did happen, with a vengeance. Beaumont and Miss Hiskins had gone out for a stroll in the dusk, and Captain Hiskins asked me to come into his study for a short chat, while Parsket went upstairs with his traps, for he had no man with him. I had a long conversation with the old captain, in which I pointed out that the haunting had evidently no particular connection with the house, but only with the girl herself, and that the sooner she was married the better, as it would give Beaumont a right to be with her at all times, and, further than this, it might be that the manifestations would cease if the marriage were actually performed. The old man nodded agreement to this especially to the first part, and reminded me that three of the girls who were said to have been haunted had been sent away from the home, and met their deaths whilst away. 
and then in the midst of our talk there came a pretty frightening interruption for all at once the old butler rushed into the room most extraordinarily pale miss mary sir miss mary he gasped out using the old name she's screaming out in the park sir and they say they can hear the horse the captain made one dive for a rack of arms and snatched down his old sword and ran out drawing it as he ran i dashed out and up the stairs snatched my camera flashlight and a heavy revolver gave one yell at poskett's door the horse and was down into the grounds out in the darkness there was a confused shouting and i caught the sounds of shooting away among the scattered trees and then from a patch of blackness to my left there burst suddenly an infernal gobbling sort of neighing instantly i whipped round and snapped off the flashlight the great blare of the light blazed out momentarily showing me the leaves of a big tree close at hand quivering in the night breeze but there had been nothing else and then the tenfold blackness came down upon me and i heard parsket shouting a little way back to know whether i had seen anything the next instant he was beside me and i felt safer for his company for there was some incredible thing near to us and i was momentarily blind because of the brightness of the flashlight what was it what was it he kept repeating in an excited voice and all the time i was staring into the darkness and answering mechanically i don't know i don't know there was a burst of shouting somewhere ahead and then a shot we ran towards the sounds yelling to the people not to shoot for in the darkness and panic there was this danger also then there came two of the gamekeepers racing hard up the drive with lanterns and their guns and immediately afterwards a row of lights dancing towards us from the house carried by some of the manservants as the lights came up i saw we had come close to beaumont he was standing over miss hiskins and he had his revolver in his right hand then i saw his face and there was a great wound across his forehead by him was the captain turning his naked sword this way and that and peering into the darkness and a little behind him stood the old butler a battle-axe from one of the arm-stands in the hall in his hands yet there was nothing strange to be seen anywhere we got the girl into the house and left her with her mother and beaumont whilst a groom rode for a doctor and then the rest of us with four other keepers all armed with guns and carrying lanterns searched round the home park but we found nothing when we got back we found the doctor had been he had bound up beaumont's wound which luckily was not deep and ordered miss hiskins straight to bed i went upstairs with the captain and found beaumont on guard outside the girl's door i asked him how he felt and then so soon as they were ready for us captain hiskins and i went into the bedroom and fixed the pentangle again round the bed they had already got lamps about the room and after i had set the same order of watching as on the previous night i joined beaumont outside of the door Oscar had come up while i had been in the bedroom and between us we got some idea from Beaumont as to what had happened out in the park. It seems that they were coming home after their stroll from the direction of the West Lodge, when suddenly Miss Hiskins said, Hush! and came to a standstill. He stopped and listened, but heard nothing for a little. Then he caught it. The sound of a horse seemingly a long way off, galloping towards them over the grass. He told the girl that it was nothing, and started to hurry her towards the house, but she was not deceived, of course. In less than a minute they heard it quite close to them in the dark, and they began to run. Then Miss Hiskins caught her foot and fell. She began to scream, and that is what the butler heard. As Beaumont lifted the girl, he heard the hoofs come thudding right at him. He stood over her and fired all five chambers of his revolver at the sounds. 
He told us that he was sure he saw something that looked like an enormous horse's head, right upon him, in the light of the last flash of his pistol. Immediately afterwards he was struck a tremendous blow, which knocked him down. And then the captain and the butler came running up, shouting. The rest, of course, we knew. About ten o'clock the butler brought us up a tray, for which I was very glad, as the night before I had got rather hungry. I warned Beaumont, however, to be very particular not to drink any spirits, and I also made him give me his pipe and matches. At midnight I drew a pentangle round him, and Parsket and I sat one on each side of him, but outside of the pentangle, for I had no fear that there would be any manifestation against anyone except Beaumont or Miss Hiskins. After that we kept pretty quiet. The passage was lit by a big lamp at each end, so that we had plenty of light, and we were all armed, Beaumont and I with revolvers and Parsket with a shotgun. In addition to my weapon, I had my camera and flashlight. Now and again we talked in whispers, and twice the captain came out of the bedroom to have a word with us. About half-past one, we had all grown very silent, and suddenly, about twenty minutes later, I held up my hand silently, for there seemed to me to be a sound of galloping out in the night. I knocked on the bedroom door for the captain to open it, and when he came, I whispered to him that we thought we heard the horse. Some time we stayed listening, and both Parsket and the captain thought they had heard it. But now I was not so sure, neither was Beaumont. Yet afterwards I thought I heard it again. I told Captain Hiskins I thought he had better go back into the bedroom and leave the door a little open, and this he did. But from that time onward we heard nothing, and presently the dawn came in, and we all went very thankfully to bed. When I was called at lunchtime, I had a little surprise, for Captain Hiskins told me that they had held a family council, and had decided to take my advice and have the marriage without a day's more delay than possible. Beaumont was already on his way to London to get a special license, and they hoped to have the wedding the next day. This pleased me, for it seemed the sanest thing to be done in the extraordinary circumstances. And meanwhile I should continue my investigations. But until the marriage was accomplished, my chief thought was to keep Miss Hiskins near to me. End of The Horse of the Invisible by William Hope Hodgson Part 1 Recording by David Lewis Richardson, Lancashire, England